Hi, everyone. My name is Drew McWeeny, and welcome to a very special 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, everybody. Who is uh, joining us, as always, from Philadelphia. And, Scott, I'm going to just start by saying that when we when you brought up the idea of doing doing this episode, it was a little... I The only hesitation I had is I have such big feelings about this that not speaking on it so far has been the only way I've actually processed it. Um, but this is going to be our attempt to pay some small tribute to the enormous work and life of George Romero. Yeah. Uh, George Romero is, uh, by all accounts, by anybody uh, opinion that matters, is a true titan of the horror uh, business. Uh, wait, let me start. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, uh, yeah uh, George Romero, without question, one of the finest horror filmmakers ever. Uh, even if you don't like horror, you can just look at what he did from an independent filmmaker standpoint and find a lot to admire. Uh, if you want to talk about social relevance and and taking a brave stance on issues that uh, were difficult at, at certain times, he was a brave man. He was a smart man. And uh, he passed away at a ripe old age. So we don't want to wallow or be miserable or depressed. Uh, what we want to do is bid a fond farewell to a great man and celebrate his work and... Um, you know, and share maybe a few anecdotes about his his films and the man himself. So, uh, you know, um, it, it was an honor to meet the man a couple of times. But uh, I think before we go into the personal anecdotes, I know Drew has met him as, had met him as well. Uh, let's just start back at the beginning, Drew. Uh, I know this episode, uh, this let's start back at the beginning, Drew. I know, of course, this is a podcast dedicated to '80s films, but we can, of course, cannot discuss George Romero without uh, starting in 1968 with the legendary, immortal, and eminently unwatchable, uh, eminent, and eminently rewatchable Night of the Living Dead. Drew, when's the first time you saw Night of the Living Dead? Tell me the story. Uh, it was television, and it, and I didn't know what it was. Um, and what was, and we came in at, at literally about 20 seconds too late for me to know what it was. And it was in that era where if you didn't get it at the beginning, on UHF channels, there might not be another ID of the film until the very end or until later when you could find the TV guides. So, right. It's like hearing a song on the radio, like, what is the song called? Oh, God. And so <laughs> we came in and they were in the cemetery and uh, it was me and it was my next door neighbor friend. And the UHF channel that we had, uh, there were several of them. And this was one of the ones that when they showed horror films, they, it, they weren't edited. And it was always crazy to me that UHF could do that, could just air kind of whatever they wanted and it wasn't bound by any real rules the way network was so like occasionally you would see things on there that were really explicit and, and insane night of the living dead i think could probably air on tv unedited now uh but it felt especially seeing it like kind of coming in correctly and a little bit grainy and a little bit staticky and not knowing what it was. It just felt like a nightmare I was having. Yes. To me, it was, I was kind of interesting, but different uh, is that I had seen it probably uh, like you on a UHF channel in Philly. It was uh, probably channel 48 or 29. And um, I remember from the early scenes and this is, you'll know what I mean instantly. I went, Oh, I know this. Oh, wait. I'm coming to get you, Barbara. I've never wait. I because I had seen I'm coming to get you, Barbara, in probably four or five other movies, but I hadn't seen this film yet. 
So my brain went, oh, this is the movie that everybody all that's in all the other horror movies. I didn't get why it was in other horror movies. I didn't get the public domain issue and all that at, when I was a kid. I just thought, oh, if this is the movie that other filmmakers keep putting in their horror movie, it must be good. And I watched it and it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. I absolutely loved it. It kind of has an appeal, like you say, um, a visceral feel, almost in the same way when I quote-unquote discovered for myself Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're watching a film and it almost feels wrong. Like you discovered something that might be real and you might, you shouldn't, maybe shouldn't be watching it. You know, it's that kind of foreboding, ominous creepiness. It's just beautiful. I love it. Well, and I thought I, I think that one of the things that distinguished Romero, and it's true from Night of the Living Dead on, and it's one of the things that I admire and respect about him most deeply, is that he is an example of what regional filmmaking should look like at its best, which is a guy who wasn't about movie stars and wasn't driven by uh, the same commercial demands as studios. His work, even towards the even throughout his life, I would say, um, continue to be driven by where he lived and how he wanted to work. And uh, he would just make the movie and it was never for him. I never felt like George Romero was ever chasing the giant version of anything. I always felt like he was just looking for a way to make his movies, his way on his terms. And, and that first film night of the living dead is so unusual for its age from the casting of the lead right down to the, the execution of everything. And because it had that weird handmade low res feel to it, I think that's part of why that nightmare got inside people so much and then really stuck with them. Night of the Living Dead lingers. Yeah, I think for a lot of independent horror films, it that, you know, they're all very different. But Night of the Living Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even Blair Witch Project, even Paranormal Activity. You look at these fiercely independent and, and not just independent, but low budget independent films. They all have a very, they could all be described as gritty, but if you think about those four films, there's not much about them that is similar. They're all very different in a gritty, hand, like you said, handheld, low res. Uh, we're going to go in the backyard and make a movie, but these were the talented people who ran into the backyard and made a movie. Anybody could, anybody can go into the back, the woods behind their house and make a movie, but not everybody could do it and produce something as entertaining and as impactful uh, and as socially relevant as Night of the Living Dead, if the film was just a great zombie film that pretty much invented a subgenre, invented the entire modern zombie genre, uh, if it was just that, that would be enough. But the fact that you can still find real resonance and real uh, pathos and real interesting themes about uh, black versus white and, and the, the brutal ending of Night of the Living Dead, uh, brave, brave, ballsy, darkly entertaining movie I, I think it deserves every ounce of praise it's ever received um and yeah like you said I, I don't think at this point or or even ever uh unlike a lot of young filmmakers I don't think George Romero ever said oh Night of the Living Dead tomorrow I'll be directing Superman movies I don't just don't think that was him I think that he was always the kind of filmmaker who was just I'm happy to be a homebody and if my movie can make enough money so that I can end up making another one in four years great you know, and, and uh, you know, not a lot of filmmakers are content to take that route, but uh, God bless the ones who are good at it because, you know, they get podcast episodes dedicated to them. 
Well, uh, and I now, think it's one of the reasons that he was so influential is he made other people feel like they could do it. They looked at his work and they saw how lo-fi it was and they took all the lessons from it, which was that, you know, you could go out and do this. I don't think a lot of people understood how, how smart and carefully crafted uh, Romero's writing was. And I think it's one of the most underrated things about him is just his the way he thought about storytelling um, even the films of his, I really, really, really don't like. And there's several of them uh, I have to respect as he had a point of view on how to get into something and tell a story and would and his point of view was always so strongly chosen that that is what makes him distinct and clear and unique as a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I, you, you touched on a good point. If you were to just list all his features and I did, I typed them all out right in front of me, just his features. And you were to be brutally honest, and you'd seen them all, you'd say, hey, less than half of them are what you'd call really good or above average. The man made some subpar films, uh, but they almost every one has some really smart, interesting, clever ideas. Sometimes they weren't executed all that well for whatever reason, uh, but you know, I never got the impression in any of his films that he was lazy or going through the motions. These are all films that really interested him. And so even if I don't love, say, Season of the Witch or The Crazies all that much, they're interesting, compelling films because they're fiercely independent and they're 100% Romero up and down. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think when he did when he made Dawn of the Dead, what happened, what I felt like happened to him as a filmmaker was he kind of clicked into place all those things he'd been playing with and trying to do. And, and it feels to me like Dawn of the Dead remained one of his most perfect creations because everything worked together the social commentary and the local filmmaking and his casting the people he wanted to and making it on a certain budget and doing it as explicit as he chose to and not worrying about ratings or how he was going to get it released and all those things that kind of made Romero who he was the use of that mall which is such a brilliant location and which has become literally a you know a, it became a pilgrimage spot for people while it was still open and and operating um because they loved so much what he did with it he did he all of it came together and so i think he hit the 80s probably feeling like the most confident george romero that george romero ever yeah. was what's interesting and yeah we'll, we'll i want to get to the 80s but i we both have to share our we both have a dawn of the dead story right all right mine was uh, probably 12, 13, 14. And I had seen most of the, the horror stuff. Uh, I had not seen this one. I don't know why. Uh, and I, there was some, a get together at like a, a friend of mine's house that I, I didn't know him very well. You know, you know, with your, when you're a kid, there are friends you're really tight with. And then there's like that outside satellite of kids you like, and you're friendly with, and they'll be on a baseball team once in a while, but you don't eat dinner at their house. And they, you know, they're not really tight. And this guy was having a get-together. He said, we're going to play some computer games. This was way, way, way back in Apple IIc times. And uh, play some computer games, watch some movies, probably hang watch movies all night. It might be a stay Like, we were too old to call it a slumber party, but we were probably going to stay up all night and watch horror movies. And so I went, and uh, they broke out Dawn of the Dead, and I was like, oh, this is one of the few I haven't seen. And me and these five guys, we watched that movie over two hours 13 or 14 years old, I don't think we spoke once. We It was like something religious. I, I mean, if you would, if there had been a camera in that room, you'd have been like, these kids are being brainwashed by something right now. That's weird. And uh, 
Uh, I'm not friends with any of those kids anymore, but that was a good night. And now you know why. I mean, good God. No, um, no. It, uh, for me, it was a um, somebody, uh, an older brother or a friend of ours uh, told us that we had to go see something with them. Uh, I think I was 14 and uh, we had to go with them. We would love it. It would be amazing. And uh, the reason they wanted to take us was it was a midnight screening of Dawn of the Dead at a mall. And they didn't tell us ahead of time much about the movie. I knew the movie only from certain images, and I vaguely knew that it was set in a mall, and, but I didn't get what the whole thing was. So on our way in, it felt one way. On our way out at 2 in the morning in a closed mall where you had to walk from the theater all the way through the mall to the parking garage exit, uh, it was the scariest like 10-minute walk I'd ever taken after a movie, and I loved it. It was the best feeling in the world. What was the big impact moment in that screening? Like, what, like, when was like when the shotgun blast? Did that? Did that? Like, because I've never seen it with a big crowd. And yeah. Well, any any every major Savini Gore moment in that movie, when you see it uh, with a crowd, gets a huge reaction. Gets this big, like, audible, and that was uh, part of what that was. That was part of my evolution as a, a Gore fan and a horror fan. I think they're very different things. I think you can be a horror fan and not like gore at all. I think to be a gore fan is a very different thing. And for me, really comes from the love of the makeup. And so watching the gags in that movie, it is like watching a comedy and you go to see like the setup and the punchline and the setup and the punchline. Or even not a comedy, even better, like a magic trick. Like, I don't want to see a woman get cut in half. I hope I never see a woman get cut in half. But I, it's just an illusion. Yeah. Like, and it's how they do it. And it's the energy of, and especially like in the biker attack or in scenes like that, to watch how Romero sets everything up and then gets those gets to those payoff moments and really nails them in that movie. Um, it's a real education. The, the biggest gut punch to me in that movie is that, and I'm sure this was part of the point, is that just when they're safe, just when they're getting comfortable, what happens it's not the zombies that invade. It's other humans. And even as like 12 or 13, I was like, ah, it's us. I get it. We are the ones who can't control ourselves. We are the ones that are going to be our own downfall. It is, the, the zombies are a byproduct of us. And I'll say this, and this is probably not going to endear me to a lot of horror fans, but that was also when I, I pretty much I was done with zombie. I got it. That movie is the biggest reaction I've ever had to a zombie piece of anything. Oh, well, yeah, it's the gone with the wind of zombie films. I mean, it, like I, Night of the Living Dead is immortal. But for me, Dawn of the Dead, the original uh, is just it, immortal. It's just untouchable. But, it's, yeah. but I just I don't get the like the Walking Dead stuff. And I don't get it because I saw it and I saw a two hour version of it that did all of it and that did it beautifully. Yeah, and I know, but I don't want to sound like an old man lecturing another old man. But that's like saying, why do they make vampire movies now? They already made great vampire movies because another generation wants to see vampires. And, you know, producers are more than happy to give them vampire movies. So I, I, I've seen I've seen enough variations on vampires that I can I can see that as an argument. I see so much stuff that is just Romero. It's not even that it's just the same monster. It's what you just said about you got it, that it was the zombies or us, that we're the monsters that exactly. And that's all any of it adds is just that idea a thousand times. And they do it just like him. Um, the argument is I, I would love if somebody found a way to do so if they want to play with that monster, fine. 
but the shape that Romero set in stone was so strong that I it's not even a genre to me. It's him. They're doing him over and over. Any movie in my and I think you'll agree, any movie or television show post nineteen sixty eight that involves hordes of zombies should have inspired by George Romero, just like any good Dracula film will say inspired by Bram Stoker, any good Frankenstein movie will say inspired by or based on Mary Shelley, that he is the author of these zombies in it just equally as they are the authors of those monsters. Yeah, and I, I just find that there's so little new stuff because he did it so perfectly. He did it to the point where even he later, when he would go back and try and make them, it was like, all right, but you did that. You did it so well. Okay, okay. George Romero is hot off easily his most successful film. He could probably, and this is one of the points in his career at which he probably had the most freedom uh, and most offers. And his first film is one we already covered on the show proper, Night Riders. That is not a safe pick. I don't care if you love it, hate it. That is not the safe pick after Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> And it is, again, as personal as a personal choice can get. Like, that movie, there is no question when you're watching it, that is a movie that is made for one thing, because George Romero wanted to make that story. Yeah, and while I still am not a big fan of the film, I, I think there's a, a really clever premise and some fun performances tucked in there. And while I don't love the film, I do admire that, you know, at one of the most powerful moments, or maybe, of his career, he still you know, did not necessarily grab for the the brass ring. He did something odd and personal. Uh, and, you know, regardless of what you think of it, I think that's admirable. Um, so following Night Riders would then lead to, I guess, what you would... Well, I keep, I keep correcting myself. Easily his biggest film, his first studio film, and a horror film that I think I speak for... I will speak for Drew, damn it. This movie holds up remarkably well today, uh, and it's Creepshow. Uh, I, I think Creepshow is not just a, a... It's such a terrific, all-encompassing tribute to the EC comics, and also just just such a confident leap forward for him. When I talk about him as a regional filmmaker and say he never worked with movie stars, well, clearly, here's a moment where he put that completely and utterly to rest because he cast all these older, interesting character actors and well-known faces in the movie, as well as a number of rising actors. But it's certainly a different level cast than he'd ever worked with. And he's a miss a beat. Like, it feels enormously confident. The stylization in that film is so clever. I love it. It is a perfect storm of, you know, Stephen King, George Romero, the right people at the right time doing the right attitude with these. If this was made 10 years later, it would have been too way too post-ironic. You know, if it had done 10 years after that, it would have been way too gruesome. This is exactly the, like you said, the, the perfect homage to the EC and any horror comics that you're forbidden fruit horror comics that your dad threw in the garbage. Uh, uh, and and uh, if, if Romero had only done his zombie films and creep show, those would be enough to, you know, like the zombie films make him a legend. Creepshow is like the icing on the cake. I, if you've never seen Creepshow, do yourself a favor. We'll cover this uh, coming up in a few episodes from now, so let's not wax too rhapsodic about the brilliance uh, of Creepshow. But uh, it, it shows, like Drew said, that not only could George Romero work on limited but funds uh, in Pittsburgh, 
but he could also work with the, the biggest author in the world and with a, a, a real budget from a real studio. And uh, it, it makes one wonder why he had didn't have slightly more. I know he's, you know, had, had indie in his blood, but after Creepshow, you know, you would have hoped that he'd had maybe more options, but he did not. And we're going to talk about that as well. Yeah, I just shared this with the boys for the first time, and we did it in two nights because of the way the uh, the everything fell. And that's one of the great things about Creepshow is it's so modular that they you can were, do they that. Were, you can... They were misbehaving, and you said, I'm going to send you to bed without Jordy Verrill. And they're like, no, Dad. <laughs> that is a movie that that was a huge moment for me to be able to get to share that and to watch how well it played and how completely – contemporary and fresh and uh, cutting edge it felt to them. There was nothing about that from the puppeteering to the effects work, to the transitioning, to the yeah, anime, nothing felt dated to them. You know what? You know what I think it is? I, I think it's easily this adjective is it's most Romero's most playful movie. And it just him. He's so confident in this movie. Like the transitions from comic book to, to the actual footage and, and be, be willing to be like, nasty funny dark funny violent funny you know uh, it's just a, a a remarkably entertaining anthology it is the the best horror anthology i know dark of night is a classic as well but uh, i i put creep show up against any horror anthology there is and uh romero's playful uh, wink uh, sense of humor makes the horror you know that you wouldn't want that for every horror film you don't wouldn't want that tone in texas chainsaw or even night of the living dead but, you know, there's just just he must have looked at this material and went, I got it. And him and Stephen King must have had a ball making this movie. Oh, my God. And my favorite part of the, uh, and we'll go into this more in the the actual creep show episode. But my favorite part of the boy's reaction was Toshi could not get his head around the fact that that was Stephen King. He was like, that is Stephen King. That that guy, that meteor shit guy is. Steve. And I'm like, yes, that's him. And he's like, I don't know. Absolutely. Rejected it utterly, which that's it's such a funny piece of casting. OK, then it went uh, his next feature after was Day of the Dead, which we will cover several episodes from now. A film which as a kid, I I probably had very high expectations. And I also was way too young to get a lot of the thematic meat of this film. So I did not care for it. I considered it a major disappointment. Uh, like a lot of horror fans, I rediscovered it in my 20s. And while I think it, it does not rank among, right up there with Night and Dawn, it is a fine film. It is an, an interesting, angry, difficult uh, horror film. Yeah, and it's and it's a really different movie. And it's a movie that this is this is where I wish he was the only guy that had ever really played in this this world. And it's one of the reasons that I get sick of the diffusions and everybody's imitations is because he he's the guy that deserved to explore all the weird corners. And I think if he had not been imitated as much as he was, and if people had kind of left him to make these movies, um, I think we would have seen more corners and he would have pushed further and he would have really explored the world as it rolled on. And to, to me, that's what's so interesting in day of the dead is night of the living dead is the moment where the thing happens. Dawn of the dead is how you live with it. Day of the dead is what do you do after you're tired of dealing with it after it's just this thing that is, it's a fact. That's it's the world. So nihilistic and bleak. And as a kid, you don't know always how to, like you, you like you you hit stop the movie's over and you just have a dark cloud over your head whereas you see a movie like Day of the Dead as an adult and it's like a political cartoon you like you can 
you know, formulate in your head what's going on and pack it away in some way. As a kid, it just kind of made me feel bleak and dark. Uh, plus, it does, has some pretty bad actors in it. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's an imperfect film, but it's also it's a movie also that stands now as a record of George Romero and his behind the scenes difficulties with Laurel Entertainment and. The 80s is largely the story of Laurel Entertainment for him and this dream that he had. And it was a beautiful dream, man, that he was going to build a sort of horror studio, that there was going to be Laurel Entertainment that was going to turn out TV stuff like Tales from the Dark Side. He was going to have his movies and they were going to have a creep show franchise and they were going to make Stephen King films and they were going to do Copperhead, which was this superhero sort of thing that he wanted to do. And Richard Rubenstein was going to produce everything. And George Romero was going to be the director of most of it. And man, they sold if you go back and you look at variety in that era and you look at any Mifed issue or any can issue or any place where they were raising money and there were marketplaces, they would always have like 40 pages of ads from Laurel Entertainment. And they raised a ton of money over the years. The real tragedy of George Romero's life is why Laurel Entertainment never became that thing and why it fell apart financially and why he and Richard Rubenstein went after each other and everything that that went on that unfortunately doesn't show up on screen and has very little impact in terms or very little tangible anything that anybody can look at. So you have this just these gaps where Romero would kind of disappear or uh, not work in film for a while. And Day of the Dead, all the seams show, all the pieces are, are clearly at odds with one another because it was a very difficult film to get made for him. And do you know what do you know what it was specifically that was the downfall of Laurel? Well, I know that I know that Rubenstein, there was a lot of bad faith issues between he and Romero and Romero over the years has certainly spoken about it with a great deal of bitterness and hurt. And it, it looks like it's a case where the money was raised and 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 raised to become Laurel Entertainment and Laurel Entertainment itself was the thing rather than any product they were making. And I think that there was there was a lot of years where they raised a lot of money on those slates and they developed scripts and they got close and they would never quite get stuff over the finish line. You know, the most famous of them is obviously The Stand, which Romero wanted to do as a giant Warner Brothers movie. And it was supposed to have this huge budget. And uh, Rospo Pallenberg, who wrote uh, Excalibur for John Borman, came in and did a screenplay. And there's you can find it if you go poking around online. You can find uh, storyboards from it, and you can find a lot of detailed information about how it all fell apart and imploded. And The Stand is a heartbreaking one because I think for King, that was a real turning point in terms of believing that he was ever going to have a creative partner that he bonded with as closely as Romero, who could have the muscle to actually make the films. And there's there's the two halves of that. There's the creative side, and clearly Romero and King loved one another. And there's the muscle side. And Romero just never had the muscle to push those bigger projects up the hill. And I think a lot of that was because he didn't like to play the game and because he insisted on doing things his way. And he was not, by some accounts, the easiest man to deal with on the financial side of things because he didn't want the strings that came with it. And that is a tough balance to strike. Right, right. Well, for, for those who are interested, Laurel Entertainment, you will see the name or or the shingle on Martin, on Creepshow, on most, uh, on pretty all Tales from the Dark Side, uh, on Creepshow 2, on the series Monsters, on the Langoliers, and the Stand uh, miniseries. And that is about it. And it, uh, I, I, know I knew a little bit about this. I knew it was an, uh, an ill-fated uh, uh, production company. 
uh, but it, it sounds like it could have been something really special. Um, unfortunately, that didn't uh, that didn't happen, uh, and that takes us to a, a weird little aberration in in George's career, uh, a horror film that I grew up loving and now think it's half silly and half great, but it's entirely watchable, and it's Monkey Shines. The Monkey Shines is a weird one, and. Yeah. <laughs> There's a terrific, if you're fans of movie podcasts, and I'm guessing you might be if you're listening to this, uh, there's a terrific How Did This Get Made episode about Monkey Shines. And uh, they will go through and they will list the true insanity of the the screenplay. But it started from a very real idea, which was, you know, the, the notion of handing everything over to these helper monkeys. And there. And I love that Romero so frequently some of his, his the films would feel like they grew out of like one idea or one notion that he couldn't kind of like go with. And to me, Monkey Shines all comes down to it's a relationship picture uh, and it's about dependence. It's about the idea of having to trust anybody, much less a helper monkey, but with 100 percent of your needs and your and what you need done. And man, there is a real uh, horror a very existential horror that comes from not being able to do things for yourself. Yeah. It's an odd movie. Uh, the monkey is fantastic. Uh, better actor than the lead. I hate to say it, but there you go. Um, and, and it has some wacky moments, but it also seems to be going for real drama or melodrama and pathos at the same time that it's trying to empathize with a man who's been, you know, paralyzed. Uh, but then it becomes an occasionally over the top, wickedly silly horror movie. Um, and you know, I don't think that was by accident. So, you know, I just love the, uh, while Monkey Shines is not an entirely successful film, I, I like the fact that it's both uh, basic melodrama and a thriller and a weird horror movie all in one. It's not any one thing. It's kind of fun. Um, but yeah, that just seems like, I don't, doesn't seem like a Romero type horror film. Uh, and with a different director, it would probably be either just out and out bad or, well, yes, out, yeah, out and out bad. <laughs> uh, and, and then we can just move on to, uh, that's that's it for the 80s. He did, in 1990, he was the writer on Creepshow 2, which has some great moments in it. That was directed by Michael Gornick, was not directed by George Romero, unfortunately. And then uh, briefly throughout the 90s, he, uh, he also wrote the underrated 1990 Tom Savini-helmed remake of Night of the Living Dead. He uh, wrote a, a segment with Dario Argento in uh, a pretty solid horror film called Two Evil Eyes. Uh, he wrote the Tales from the Dark Side film, and he wrote four episodes of the very fun TV series. Uh, he wrote The Dark Half, another collaboration with Stephen King, and a fun horror movie. He wrote, uh, directed Bruiser, and uh, then he did his final uh, zombie trilogy, the, would you say, what, controversially mixed, in that you'll find people who love them and people who hate them, Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. What do you think of those? What do you think of the later uh, ones, Drew? I like Land of the Dead. Um, I really don't like the other two. And I, and I don't like them because I feel like they are, I feel like they're compromised from frame one. It's, you know, we, we talk about the, the, the stuff that didn't get made and that I, I feel like they, for Romero, the turning point really was, um, and I, I think I mentioned this movie, but there's a thing called Copperhead and Copperhead was supposed to be Marvel Comics was going to launch a character. George Romero was going to make the movie at the same time. It was something that he helped co-create and that was supposed to be this 
it, I mean, it essentially Scott sounded like RoboCop in Philadelphia, where it was the cyborg sheriff. Uh, there was a treatment. There was a script. The it was story by George Romero, story by Jim Shooter. They had um, uh, actual like Marvel artists come in. They did forty eight pages of of concept art slash comic art that was going to be basically what the comic adaptation was. And it was Day of the Dead that killed it because Day of the Dead, you know, Day of the Dead was going to be a much, much larger film. There was like a giant version of that. That was what he wrote when they couldn't raise the money for that. He had to go back and scale it down by about two thirds. So the two thirds smaller version is the movie that it was in theaters that we saw. And then it didn't work. It didn't make enough money to to justify them moving forward with any of the slate. And I think that moment where he couldn't even raise the money for a a dead sequel, like where that was the one thing he had in the hip pocket. I can always make another dead film. That's what we can use to raise money for everything else. You know what George Romero needed in 1985? Crowdfunding. It would have been remarkable to see what could have happened with that, because I think his fans, his fans would have paid for any of these things. If crowdfunding was around in 1985, he would have had, $10 $10 million to make Day of the Dead. Before we get into the little our own anecdotes, I'd like to give our listeners just a little bit of insight into the whys and the wherefores, into how George Romero suffered one of the largest screwings in filmmaking history. Uh, and, and you can find a lot more about this by just look Wikipedia or any source on George Romero. But in a nutshell, uh, through a clerical error that was not his fault, somebody else's error, Night of the Living Dead was not traditionally copyrighted and therefore had to be deemed public domain in the early 80s prior to the production of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, and it was literally just because they forgot to put something on the prints themselves of the original release. That's that's insanity to me that it's a loophole. Yeah, just a simple, not wasn't malicious. It wasn't anybody trying to screw anybody. It was just a simple clerical mistake and... By that happening, what what happens is now now George Romero does not own the rights to Night of the Living Dead. So what that means is anybody and their mother can put it out on VHS or DVD. That means that anybody can copy the film, can call it something of the dead. That means that, and he can't sue because they, he couldn't say, hey, they're, they're stealing my concept. Why? Because he doesn't own that concept now. Uh, so it started like a domino effect of, uh, you know, a lot of, and it still continues to this day, not pointing any fingers, but there are still people to this day who make money directly off what George Romero came up with, and it's because he was not able to copyright the film just like every other filmmaker in the world. You know, and I've, I've had people yell at me about this. I said something when he passed about how I, f- I truly feel like if he had ever been financially given what was his due. Exactly. It, it would have changed who he was and it would have changed the work that we got from him. And it breaks my heart. And also as an artist, it terrifies me. He is the cautionary tale of all cautionary tales. You can create something that is Raiders of the Lost Ark or Mad Max style influential where for a decade and a half or two decades were in Romero's case, you know, five decades now, people constantly doing variations on that thing you did. It didn't make the the Raiders or the the Mad Max guys any richer, but any sequels or any direct spinoffs had to be approved by them, had to deal with them, had to be something that, that enriched them. And Romero, God bless him. 
it felt like from that moment on, from the moment that Night of the Living Dead was public domain and he got screwed on that, it felt like he just caught the shit end of every stick. Yeah, he really did. And and we'll get to this in the next segment, but he was always so classy about it. He did have, by many accounts, he did have his tough and Dave, and, and ballsy side when he had to. You won't find many people who have a negative thing to say about George Romero. And, you know, it just... Like you said, if if he had been able to retain those rights and and bring in the residuals that he was able to, then he wouldn't have had to go with his hand out and and do a, a dime store version of Day of the Dead. He would have, and probably he could have, and probably would have invested half of his own damn money because that's the kind of person he was. Uh, I wish there was a villain in this uh, situation that we could blame, but there's not. There's just simple human error, and it led to you know uh, a a great career that definitely deserved better. Let's put it that way, right? Yeah. Uh, so, Drew, why don't you tell me about the first time you met George Romero in person and uh, how long did it take for you to scoop your jaw up off the floor? Uh, it was uh, when I was young and it was at a convention and um, I got lucky in that I ended up sort of uh, pushed into a situation where we had to wait for something. I was waiting with a friend to uh, do something unrelated to George Romero. He got put in the same holding area and we ended up talking for a good five or 10 minutes. And right away, what I found different about him than many, many filmmakers that I've met is it wasn't even that there was a, a humility or that there was a sense that he was humble about his work. There was a refusal to let me put him on a pedestal that from the minute I started talking to him, he seemed actively determined to not have it be, I'm George fucking Romero and you're a fan. It was, there was such a real human attempt to speak to me. And I, I'd met already, I'd met many famous people that by, by that point. And a lot of times I understand it, it's self-preservation to some extent. You only give a piece of yourself or a piece of your attention or you only open up a certain amount. And Romero didn't seem like he had that kind of filter thing. And anytime I dealt with him over the years after that, uh, I'm not going to say that he remembered me every time or that I made a huge impression on him, but the decency and the open wide humanity is what was always present and he said things sometimes casually that i feel like he would that many people would keep very close to the vest i think romero never hid how he felt about things i don't think he ever played down his feelings about his history or his complicated relationship with it i feel like he was just wide open who he was all the time and i dearly dearly value that I got to speak to him and that I got to in any way kind of glimpse that real person. And it helped. It really helped me set a context for everything else. I understood why there wasn't more work by him. I understood why he was frustrated by some of what there was. I under, I got a real sense of who he was. And I just, I, I just have mad love for him as a, an artist who constantly throughout his life was fighting to just make what he wanted to make the way he wanted to make it. Mm. I met the George Romero uh, was probably, I forget which fantastic fest it was probably three or four. Uh, it was a while ago. And uh, I was after a film and I was as usual out front ranting and raving with various other nerds about movie this and movie that. And one of the staff members tapped me on the shoulder and said, Tim, uh, wanted you out back. Now, of course, Tim is the owner and manager of 
the Draft House franchise and, and Fantastic Fest and is a great guy. But very rarely when he's surrounded by, you know, a thousand people, does he single me out and say, I need you. So I was curious. So um, I went out to the back of the theater and there waiting for his car with his wife and three or four other press nerds and Zach Carlson, the wonderful Zach, uh, was George Romero. And I walked up to Tim and I was like, hey, what's up? He's like, oh, I just, I'm glad you're here. I assumed you'd want to meet Mr. Romero before he left. And not only was I amazingly touched that Tim thought of me, because he knew that it would mean a lot to me, but George just turned to me, shook my hand. He said, Scott, right? Great to meet you, man. Really good to meet you. Tim tells me you write about films. I got one. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm talking to George Romero. And, you know, you and I have both met our share of famous people. And after the first five minutes, you're like, yeah, that, that's a famous person. Great. She's cool. Great. 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 With George Romero, you're constantly being reminded that you're talking to George Romero, who so, you know, I'm meeting somebody who not just is famous and therefore it's neat, but I'm meeting somebody who whose work really meant something to me. It wasn't just, oh, yeah, you directed a handful of movies and I might have seen this was somebody whose work changed my life altered its direction, made me enthusiastic about movies, made me want to talk about films. He was one of my Hall of Fame direct, horror directors. And to, you know, I've met a few of them. And just to shake hands with George Romero, and I wish I, the story was more flashy than that, but we shot the shit. And I was like, are you going to be able to really see other films while you're here? Is How's Austin been treating you? Is it hot? You know, I, I was being like that guy. His car pulled around. Tim gave him a hug. And he said, great to meet you guys. And got in the car and left. And it, it was like Elvis had left the building. It was just that. It was it was beautiful. He was great. You got a second one? Uh, I really don't. Like, I all of my meetings with him were the same. And that's part of what I really enjoyed about him. I think one of the other times was at Fantasia. And, you know, I for me, part of what I the the other thing that I'll say is I enjoyed watching people flip out about meeting him um, because there are people that you meet that, you know, you tell other people, oh, it's fine or or this. Uh, there are certain certainly people who have reputations as not being terribly easy or enjoyable. Um, Romero was a guy who people were always super excited after they ran into him. And in some cases, it was far more than that. I remember when Edgar Wright first was getting ready to release Shaun of the Dead. And I had known Edgar for a while. I'd known him because of Spaced and because our managers put us together. And and so I, when he was getting ready to make Shaun of the Dead, we helped him get some of his extras. Like we put up a thing on Ain't It Cool to, uh, for people in the English, uh, for people in the London area who might want to be in a film. And, you know, we said, look, if you're a big Romero fan, if you love those types of zombie movies these guys are trying to do something that we think will really so like the bald twin brothers who were in Shaun of the dead they were ain't it cool readers that responded to the ad and then edgar brought the film very early and we got to look at it it was always a question for him will george romero see this movie will george romero get a chance to see this movie and when he finally got a chance to show it to him when he was able to tell that story about showing it to George Romero and George loving it and George having the reaction he did to it, the sense of satisfaction and relief from Edgar was so palpable. And I think it's because we all, any of us who love George's movies, do think of him as not only a Titan, but as a Titan who never fully got his due. So like making him realize, no, no, you meant something to us. You, Your work changed us. Your work influenced this other great work. I think that was enormous for him. Just to be told that George Romero liked the movie. If I'm Edgar Wright at that moment, I'm like, that's it. I win. 
I made the movie I wanted and George Romero likes it. I win. George Romero would be like the college professor that you wish you had. That everybody would say, oh, did you get Professor Romero? Oh, you lucky bastard. You know, uh, he was that kind of guy. And, uh, and, and the last time that I met him, uh, he had said something to me. I, I read up on some of your work on Fearnet. And I'm impressed. You are really dedicated to the genre. And, you know, I, I'm really impressed by your work. And I was just thinking, George Romero read my reviews. And I went to shake his hand. And he actually gave me just a quick little man hug. And the guys, you know, six foot five, whatever. And I felt like a little kid hugging his grandfather. Grandpa horror. Like, that's that's what I always... Anytime you saw him, uh, at least in my lifetime, like Grandpa Horror is what I thought of him as because he did. He had that really familial thing that he would quickly do. And you're right the, the when he would start talking horror and horror theory, the, the my two favorite guys to ever do that with, just in terms of when you started listening to them, you realized, my God, they've thought about this so much more than almost anybody I've ever met. It's him and Wes Craven, who both both they were just remarkable speakers they were just so so in love with it just you know they're smart and you know educated as well there's a difference you know you can be born smart but if you're not educated you're in trouble these were smart educated but also like compassionate guys like george romero he's not wasn't just smart you don't have to be smart or not smart to make a story about the injustices of racial inequality that that's passion that's heart that doesn't just come from being smart you know what i mean uh, and, and, you know, I think it's a testament to George Romero that when you look at his filmography, you'll, aside from the classics, you'll go, yeah, good, not so great, good, good, man, eh, pretty not. He, he had a very inconsistent directorial career, but yet is as beloved as a Spielberg or a Carpenter or a, you name it. He is as beloved and deservedly so as any filmmaker. I, I am forever grateful that I got to meet the man. Uh, thank you to Tim. Thank you to Paul for, for helping to, to get me to meet and know George Romero very, in a very brief fashion. He was a beautiful guy, and uh, I'm grateful that we still have his films to, to enjoy. Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm actually I'm really glad that we spoke about him because it, it was, um, like I said, bittersweet. And I think because uh, his career frequently feels like a cautionary tale that, you know, looking back at it, um, I just on his behalf got angry again. And the the good part is watching how people reacted and in hearing some of the things people said about him, I do feel like there is a really active um, love for his filmmaking and not just for the one or two titles that people know first. I think there's, look, there's people that love Knight Riders way more than I do. There's people that love uh, season of the witch and the crazies and Martin and, I, I like that. I like that all of his films have their defenders, and that that clearly uh, that people have a people still have an ongoing relationship. And man, there are moments I will always treasure uh, when I saw the Dark Half. Um, it's an okay movie. It's based on an okay Stephen King book. Uh, but there is a line in the film I started laughing so hard in the theater that I actually. I thought I'm going to have to either get up and leave or I'm going to have to figure out how to get control of myself. But it was so perfectly timed and thrown away. And it's just one of those things where I'm like, it, if that didn't delight Romero on set, I, I'm, it's when they're in the hallway and Timothy Hutton's coming down the hallway to kill somebody. And 
somebody opens the door and steps out and says, hey, what's going on out here? And he just looks at him and says, murder, want some? And they close the door and they're gone. And there's <laughs> and that line and the throwaway and Hutton's delivery and the way Romero staged it. Romero was a guy who in any scene would find a way to surprise you, would find a way to come at it from his own point of view and would make the f- the the moment that no other horror filmmaker would make out of that. And I think that that cannot be overvalued. A voice is everything, and he had a voice in every one of his movies. Uh, thank you, George, for all the great films, and you will be missed. <laughs>